Hi, I'm the Ish Girl, and you're listening to episode 20 of Connection Not Perfection. Welcome to Connection Not Perfection, the podcast that helps parents and teens connect using literature, laughter, and love. Hey there, I'm Amy Kelly, also known as the Ish Girl, and I would like to welcome you to a very special episode of Connection Not Perfection. Not only is this the first session of our Summer Lit Club, it is also episode 20, which is a super exciting accomplishment. Now, if you've been with me for all 20 episodes, thanks so much for hanging with me for all of it. And if you're brand new, I hope today's show launches you into all the previous episodes that are out there. Now, today we're talking about the first book in my lit club, and that is Julie Buxbaum's What to Say Next. Now, as I mentioned in episode 18, that was two episodes ago, I'm focusing on mental health for teens in this month. And for that episode, episode 18, I talked about the book When We Collided by Emery Lord. And in episode 19, I broke down some of the elements of the second season of Netflix series 13 Reasons Why. Now, What to Say Next definitely deals with mental health, but it has a very different tone and flavor than those other two episodes and the things that I've talked about so far. Now, from angst and romance to heartache and hope, while What to Say Next is not a what I would call a light summer read, it's definitely a heartwarming one. Now to talk about it with me, I invited my friend and critique partner and soon to be published author of Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, Emily Robertson. That book of hers is actually going to be coming out in the fall of 2019. Now M has been a bookseller in Little Rock, Arkansas, a newspaper reporter in Vicksburg, Mississippi, a marketing manager in Boston, and a writer in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and in Dallas, Texas. She graduated from Brown University, and she has a master's degree in English from the University of Texas at Austin. She now lives in Little Rock, Arkansas with her husband, her three sons, and no pets. You can find her. um, I have a link to her website on my show notes page, and that is www.emilyrobersonbooks.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-R-O-B-E-R-S-O-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. Or you can find her on Instagram at, um, at Robertson Emily M and on Twitter at Robertson Emily. So I do want to warn you, if you plan to read this excellent book and you haven't done so yet, you really will want to wait until after you finish to listen to this episode because our conversation conversation is more of a book club talk than it is a review or a recommendation. So there are definitely spoilers. So stop here and wait until after you've read the book to listen. So without further ado, here is our talk. All right, 
welcome, Em. I'm so excited to have you here today. Okay, we are cracking up because I just, I, I love how Emily just put it, that I am, I, I had an on-brand moment because being an ish girl, we were trying to figure out the audio and I, I couldn't hear Em and she was trying to figure out her microphone on her end and we were having all kinds of trouble and and then I realized that my audio was on mute. <laughs> so it was just, it was an ish moment for sure. So welcome, Em. We're so glad that you're with us today. We are talking about What to Say Next by Julie Buxbaum. And I know that I actually heard about Julie Buxbaum from you, Em, I think with her first book, which was, remind me of the title. Uh, well, it's actually her first YA book. It's her, Tell oh, Me right. Three Things. Okay, right, because she wrote for adults before that. I had forgotten that. So we read Tell Me Three Things, and then this one came out, and I was super excited about it. Tell me what you thought about the book. I love the book. I read it several months ago when it first came out because I am sort of basically love what she does and was very excited about it and was just absolutely captivated from the beginning because – um, I just love David. I love his voice. I love his worldview. I just, I was completely from those first pages, just locked in to wanting to caring about what happened to David. Right. Me too. It, me too. And I know we talked about this a little bit It for, for people out there who've read the Rosie project, it's very similar to that where he is clearly on the spectrum of having autism and so his voice is so logical and you just know right from the very beginning that he is um, a different thinker, right? So right. I enjoyed that a lot. And I enjoyed Kit's voice too, because I did too. I, I loved what I loved about Kit was you had that sense that like, she was someone who it was just such a great juxtaposition of characters because she was clearly someone who was suppressing huge parts of herself to fit into a crowd and then through her grief was not able to do so and to have her interact with David who's someone who's actually incapable of suppressing parts of himself I thought was just a beautiful interact you know interaction right. that they had well and and I think at the beginning you feel like they're so opposite but then you realize how similar they are well, I was thinking about how one of the things they set up so well with Kit and David is their families and how David's family is essentially, they are, they are not trying to change him. They are trying to give him the tools to operate in the world. Right. And it's clear in the case of Kit's mother, as much as she loves her, that parental voice throughout, there's this great line where her mom's like, Kit, would it kill you to try? And you have this sense that her mother doesn't see, but what's obvious to us is that Kit sitting at the lunch table with her two friends has always been trying. But from her mom's perspective, she's not pretty enough. She's not, I mean, they don't, she doesn't hammer it, but it's clear she's not enough. pretty enough. She's not skinny enough she's not even though like we know from the first chapter that she's one of the only two national merit semifinalists in the whole school except for David but it's clear that from her mother's perspective she's not enough and then having losing her dad who clearly she was enough you can see where that where that challenge comes in and I think that's part of the arc of the story right 
Right. I think that's And I was wondering, you know, we were thinking about the things that we liked or didn't like about the book. Right. And I did not love the mom's plot line. I didn't love that she had cheated on the dad. Like I don't I just I felt like in some ways it detracted from the main story, but that's only if I think about the main story as being David and Kit. But if you think about the main story as being Kit understanding that she can be herself, that she can tell the truth, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, right. This is really relevant to the right. main story. And I felt like she had to include that flaw with the mom for Kit to be able to realize that. Yeah. Because I think with the shock of her dad's death and the grief that she's going through and the, just the kind of numbness that comes along with that sometimes. Right. Once she started realizing that her mom was flawed, which I think is a huge thing, a theme in YA and something right. that, I, that I talk a lot about here is, is that transition point when your teen starts to see their parents, which would be us in our case, I, right, exactly. completely flawed and human, which as a parent is kind of a relief sometimes. Right. Like, you know, and terrifying. And terrifying. <laughs> and terrifying. That's true. That's true. Now we've talked a little bit about their voices, and I'm curious because you are a writer, and I think I've shared with the audience already that you have a book coming out in the fall of 2019. Which congratulations! We're just super excited for you about that. But I really loved the two different voices that Julie Buxbaum. Did. And we talked about that a little bit already, but but maybe speak a little bit to how complex that is as a writer, like oh, nailing I mean, those two things. She, the way that she, she abs, the skill involved, like the literal craft involved in doing what she did is really amazing. Like you could never be mistaken about whose chapter you're reading. Right. And that's how you can always tell that the voice is completely nailed is you could never and you think about there's, I'm sure if you went through it technically, I know that there are where I suspect there are many times where Kit uses words that David would never use or that David would only use ironically. And she, she sets that up. That's a point of humor at many points where they're both right. speaking um, because that's where you really see the technical. It's like a fireworks display. Right. And they're right. both talking, they're texting each other. And you have no question about who is speaking and even something like the, um, their separate perceptions of his sister, of Miney, who's Lauren, but uh, right, right. clearly my, my identification is totally David because I kept getting confused later when someone would say Lauren. I was like, wait, who's Lauren? Where you can see like they're seeing different things. Right. Uh, and even with the names, I loved how she came back to that at the end. Like he is thinking about her name not fitting her at the beginning. And then he tells her that at the end and he tells her this name that he sometimes calls her in his head. And she's like, really? <laughs> like, you know, 137 or right. something. <laughs> like a then, like, You just think about something like when he draws her the pictures of the two numbers, like, at the very end and I just like just totally slammed me like this is a person who has assigned a personality to these numbers you know you just you just completely feel like you're in someone's head yes. I yes I heard yes. um I heard um 
Scott Westerfeld speak, and he was talking about how, mach- what is he saying? Books are machines for becoming other people. Yes. That's what they do. Right. And, and I felt like overwhelmingly in this book, like one of the things I thought was so well done was when the notebook is stolen oh, and suddenly we have been in the notebook. Like we have been loving the note. I've been loving the notebook. I've been wishing I had the notebook. Right. And then you suddenly see, and, and the fact that like Kit's response to the notebook initially is this is really weird. Right. And we, at that point, she's had us in for so long that we don't think it's weird anymore. We don't think it's weird. And also what I, as a reader and we know what's going on outside of David as well. Like I was freaking out. Like, he's like, I don't know why they'd want that. They'll just return it because who cares? Who cares? cares He doesn't understand that this is going to blow up. And we're just like, my heart was sinking. Like it was that pie chapter gutted me. And that's another thing with voice. Like how it's just a list of numbers. And yet I, Totally. I had read the book before. I read it again. I cried. I like, I literally cried. Right. My children were looking at me and laughing. Like, why are they always <laughs> laughing at me when I cry at books? Why are you crying? And if I showed it to them and was like, hey, look, it's a list. It's pie. Right. They'd be like, okay. But we're so enmeshed in David. That we can that hear him saying every single one of those those numbers numbers. for the chapters and the pages and the pages and the pages. Yes. Like, yes. And the fact I really loved also about when you think about humanization of people who, you know, just people who are different from you, whether it's Kit or David, um, the way that we did have a sense that I think sometimes there's a stereotype about people with autism that they, that they don't feel, which is right. just, I know it's true. They say, you know, if you've met one person with autism, you've met, you've one, met person one person with autism. With autism. Right, right. But my overall experience has been, no, no, they do feel, they just, they express things, they process things differently. And so the, that feeling of being like, you had some sense as uh, for us as the person who doesn't have autism, who's reading, he had that moment where his, mother and sister come in and rock yes with him oh now not touching him and I thought okay this is like this is actually helpful from a perspective of like how do you help someone who you don't know how to help well you ask them right and sometimes they'll tell you you know and sometimes they can't tell you and I think we are both in tears just yeah. thinking about that scene. And and I was thinking about when he finally came downstairs yeah. and you could just see his mom just like where she's like, I didn't. This is welcome back. Welcome back. Like, I didn't think you, you, we were going to have you come back. And that just talking about getting you like that yeah. was. Well, I okay. think it was interesting too about. You know, you and I have talked about, and we can go to this now or later, the differences between 13 Reasons Why yes. and this, and yes. what, and which I haven't seen 13 Reasons Why. I've heard your discussion of it and read reviews of it. But I wonder if some of the differences is that this book completely allows for cross-generational support. Yes. In yes. fact, it like absolutely relies on it because you think about David's family what they don't say is snap out of it David get over it David right it's been two days it's been three days 
and I feel like them in it, right? They, like they sit with him with yeah. it, absolutely. And I think the sense we have of Kit's family, number one, is that her mom completely shut down, and then you're not allowed to talk about it. You have several cases where she's like, I think my mom's going to mention. And I feel like on the second read, knowing that Kit had been driving the car, right. it really informed the whole first read. Like I totally understood now, like, oh, she says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, multiple times. And her mom's like, you don't have anything to be sorry for. And I was like, right, the first read, you don't have anything to be sorry for. And then the second read, you're like, oh my gosh, this girl is dealing with this huge weight of guilt and sadness right. and her mom's answer to that is like put it under the bed and we don't look at it and right, right. um which I feel like is a very um and so you can totally understand why the girls in the school are like when she first starts sitting at David's table in the beginning of the book it's been a month and everybody's like it's been a month and I feel like one of the things that I've seen from walking with friends through grief especially having lost a parent is that they they say it just slams you from left field a year after, a two right. years after, like Father's Day. You know, that's one of the reasons right. on Twitter people put up threads about like, here's a place you can go for Father's Day that isn't going to make you cry. Like, I get you. I see right. you. Um, but, but I also think it's it's an unexpected things too. Like you just right. see things. Like you see something that reminds you and it's that wall slamming into you. So, But you totally see where her her mother by refusing to talk about it by refusing to engage with it kit's mother has pushed her back to where other kids or a random therapist are the places that she could go for support her friends don't have the this is the 13 reason why thing 17 year olds some of them do but most of them don't have the bandwidth to help each other through serious serious problems right Right. Um, they don't have capacity, capacity, intellectually, any of those things. And so, yeah, I get that. And, and that's one of the things with 13 reasons why, because they're so isolated from parents and because they're only relying on each other. I just think it's just such a, a vicious circle of this is going to continue to spiral downward because they don't have the skills, the skill set to be able to deal with it and then throw in and, and I was thinking about with Kit and her mom because her mom had her hide that she was the one driving the car that was so shame inducing like right. to hide it at all says this is not like I do think you're guilty I do right. feel like this is a huge thing a big mistake accident whatever that you right think. yeah um and I think too that there's I was thinking again about the like I loved and I'd be super curious to know what I kid had to say about it but I love David's parents in the principal's office like I yeah. loved that scene and yeah. I love that Kit got to be part of that scene and also I really feel like as a had I read it as a kid as a lover of you know things like the breakfast club where oh incompetent authority is kind of like the way that basically I could totally see all those things happening look David beat up the uh, the the innocent football team and he doesn't he shouldn't come to school here and just like the her his parents you know seeing the places where you know we we've been talking before about you and I have talked just in general but I've been thinking a ton about what are the and I know on the podcast you talk about this like what are the messages that you would give your kids through the books that they're reading and I was actually really thinking about how 
there's two main things, right? One of which is that Kit is really an upstander in this book, like in the ways that we would want kids to be. Like she uses her social capital as small as it is to help David. She does get the notebook back. It's taken down because Kit stands up for him. Says, yeah, this is not okay. And I'm going to go to the principal and tell him that you did this. She doesn't go to the principal. And there are several times where the, you know, various people suggest like, do we need to go to the principal about this? Do we need to go to the principal about that? And no, it'll just make it worse. But in the case after the fight, like his parents do go. And I was totally like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was definitely that moment when he like kicked it everybody's butt (laughs) like hardcore put them in the hospital like craziness which I loved and he and that he warned them ahead of time and I mean he did all the things and 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 going back to 13 reasons why I kind of to me these are both extremes of maybe what real life is like for kids because it's not often that the kid who's picked on is going to turn around and beat up the football team, right? Right. Like clearly. So with those messages with your kids, like not everybody gets that happy ending, but I do love like what you're talking about where the parents are clearly his advocates. The parents are clearly um, standing up to the principals wanting to kind of just make it, you know, pat everything down and make it all right. We don't want to have to deal with this kid you know, we want our football team to be able to go on the way that it goes on. And surely he can't have any friends, especially not Kit, and smacking that down, being his advocate and his sister being his advocate, because clearly she, none of this really happened until after she had graduated. After she was gone. After she was gone. So I think even though that's kind of like a fairy tale ending with how he beat them up, but the part that really stood out was, was that advocacy. And again, to repeat what you said, which is they just accepted him for who he was and they equipped him right for his environment. That his dad's response to the locker incident was, I just think, I think it's fascinating. His dad's response to the locker incident is we're going to teach you to defend yourself. And, you know, I've been talking to my kids a lot about about bullying and the messages that we used to hear all the time about bullying. And I was bullied as a kid. And, and the messages I always heard from adults were just ignore them. It'll go away. And even, I remember as a kid feeling like that doesn't really work. Like when also feeling like, um, I have a very strong memory of after one day of having been you know, having insults shouted at me for some length of time, going to speak to someone in authority and hearing that, like, well, if you would just stop crying, they would oh leave you alone. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And I just remember thinking like, okay, well, I, let's have you stand up. Right. And people find all the worst things about you and then shout them at you in public. And I remember thinking this as a sixth grader. Right. I bet you would start crying. Grown up. And I think that as much as one of the things that, that my husband always says is he feels like I would have been bullied much less had I struck back as a kid. And I still don't know. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that what I did, which was what every adult in my life was telling me to do. And I guarantee you, if I were a boy, they would have told me something different, which makes me still drives me crazy to this day that I was supposed to basically 
step back, hide, run away, right. get yourself out of the situation rather than shout back or punch them, punch them, <laughs> punch, literally punch them. Like, um, and I think I had so much fear and shame over the prospect because what I was bullied for was being tall and fat. And my, and my husband has said before, you were much bigger than they were. You were really good. <laughs> okay. Well, oh. first of all, I just have to say like, that is horrific. And I'm so sorry that you walked through that, but I love how you're able to articulate it now. And clearly as a writer, I think that you really are an advocate for kids number one. Number two, I think you're right. Like none of the adults from our generation, I think generation X, like I don't think anybody knew how to handle it. Like they didn't, they didn't want to face it head on. They didn't want the conflict of what it would mean to confront the bully and, and to try to protect you. And so all the things that go along with that are, are horrific. Like just horrific. And I'm so right. sorry. And I don't, and, and at the same time, I, you know, when we were thinking about what we, what we have mixed feelings about in the book, like I do, I have mixed feelings about the Krav Maga while also loving the Krav Maga, right? Like it feels like on the one hand, it feels like a fairy tale. On the other hand, it was the moment where I would be standing up cheering in the Absolutely. theater. Absolutely. And and I think that both things can be true, right? Like both right. things can be true. And so, and I, I think that that, you know, we, we were talking about books, you know, the notion of girl books and boy books and yes, yeah, that kind of thing. And I felt like for me, you were asking if, if, that, if my yeah. boys would read it, my boys are pretty do not pay that much attention, May mostly because we often listen to books on Audible together, and so they don't ever see the covers. I think the cover of this book is a very clear, like, statement uh, that it's geared girls. That it's towards girls. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't really imagine. I don't know that they would buy it. Well, and that that was my thing. Like, I think if you handed a boy this book, they probably would be like, eh, no thanks, because it, it does look girly, I, I think which is such a shame because I think it would be a boy book. Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, right. I think that the, the fact that the book starts off with a male protagonist, that the book that is so, I mean, I have to have a man read it, but I feel like it was a very strongly male, like it didn't feel, you know, sometimes when, especially in romance, right. uh, when women write men, they're like a m ideal man. Like right. they're like a, they're not, they're like your mirage. You're, yeah. Anyway, so they're some sort of creation, but he felt very real to me, very male to me. Right. Um, and so I just, I think that, that, but I feel like a lot for that reason, it's probably like, I'm sure it's a marketing decision that a lot of people put a lot of thought into, but I feel like a lot of boys are like moving to adult fiction rather right. than reading YA. I don't, yeah, I would agree with that. I think because your boys, tell me again, if you don't mind, how old are they? 14, I mean, no, no 13, 11, and 7. I, I know, I'm doing the same thing. My kids have birthdays. They're like, birthdays the are in the summer. and Yeah, so we're, I feel like I'm already kind of there. Yeah, so I have a 17-year-old boy. No, I did it too. A 16-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl, almost 15 and 17. And yeah, I think once they went past like the Harry Potter and the Percy Jackson and all that, it was kind of straight to adults. 
Yeah, my I would say so. My oldest really did enjoy Divergent and The Hunger Games. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think that those are, and the the Maze Runner for sure. So some of the things that are in the fantasy realm, right? Uh, YA fantasy, I think, are still the Fifth Element, that kind of thing. Right. But I think in the realistic, it must, you know, it seems like that's really heavily been marketed towards girls. Girls, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, but I feel yeah. like that if somebody, you know, if a boy stumbles into it I feel like it's really great yeah yeah um, agreed agreed again wish it was marketed a little bit differently just so I'm that sure they, they enjoy that they must just I'm I'm sure they know I'm sure they know <laughs> way more than we do I'm sure I'm sure so I liked as well because again this is something that I've been focusing on for this month's episodes the idea of mental health for teens and you really, it's not ever really directly talked about because it's all through David's perspective, but my knee, his sister is clearly depressed, right? Something. And we don't ever, we know it maybe has to do with a boy, but I think it's really interesting. His perspective on what that's like to, to live with someone who is is in that kind of depression, but to not really understand in the way that he doesn't understand and, and what that looks like. I thought that was super interesting. And then also to see that Kit's mom was also depressed, I think, the way yeah. and the way that she was handling it was just by shoving everything under the rug, I think. So well and I thought it was interesting, you know, we were talking about parents and but I one of the things I loved about the book is that you don't have a good parent, bad parent, you know, it's not one of those stories. And there are great ones where, you know, where you have like a wrinkle in time situation where one family is kind of a mess and the other family is, you know, okay. And in this case, both families are okay. And both families are a mess like at the same time, because it's clear mm-hmm. that while they've accepted David fully, when Miney comes home from college, it's clear, you know, I, I think my sense was the big things are like, she's failing physics. She came onto her physics tutor and he shut her down. <laughs> like those things all together. Right. But her, the dad's reaction to, and I feel like actually David totally nails it. The dad's like, anyone can be homecoming queen. You know, you need to pick a hard major. And, and I think that's such an interesting thing because it's another example of a sort of blindness. Because even David realizes like, well, not anyone can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and we have kids perspective that she sees Lauren as being unreachably in fact Lauren and David's mother like she interacts with them as being like this sort of beautiful that she feels like she doesn't even have access to right how is it that they're beautiful in you know she's like she's wearing a man's work boot (laughs) beautiful still looks amazing yeah um she's depressed and she still looks amazing and so I think that we can see like David's parents have gone to all this trouble to accept David, how he is, but have they, has his father accepted Lauren the way that she is and not, you know, like, but they still love, you know, they all still love each other. I wished with the Lauren plotline, I've been thinking a bunch lately about destigmatizing mental health care. Like, 
actually, like I was thinking, I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone was going on and on about um, the self-care things they did for their anxiety and the person's describing their anxiety. And I was like, please mention Lexapro, like please mention medicine because the level of anxiety that they were describing, like if they hadn't been to a doctor for someone, I would like pause the podcast and say, this is actually a treatable condition that many people, these things approve, not to sound like a pharmaceutical ad, but I think that the way that the way that it was revealed to David that the guitar teacher was really a mental health coach. And he was like, wait, I wish you told me that at the beginning because I could have learned the guitar on YouTube. (laughs) And I was like, but you feel like that's totally an example of his parents being like, oh, and maybe the David that we met at the beginning of the book who had that DSM but was unwilling to admit that he had Asperger's would have reacted negatively to being told that they were providing this coaching. I think that's part of the journey of the story. Right. And that's, that's the impression that I got too, is maybe he would have been not quite as open to working with his tutor if he had been told outright, like, this is what it is. But yeah, I think you're right though, as far as destigmatizing getting treatment and because I think there's this, this whole, and I get it, like this whole like natural movement and, you know, but I also think that there's a place for those meds right. as well. Well, like, and also there's a whole thing in YA. It's a real, I mean, it's almost like a, a YA cliche that the kid's like, oh, I don't want to go talk to some old therapist about whatever. Right. And it's, it's a very negative presentation of that. And I can say that the couple of times that I've been to talk to somebody where you went for something yes. really specific and you knew why you were there. It's been amazing. Yes. Super They're helpful. paid to listen to you and you <laughs> don't have to worry that you're boring them by running over your, um, like I went at 25 because of the after effects of the childhood trauma of being bullied mm-hmm. that I could tell that it was toxic on my relationship with my then boyfriend, who's now my husband uh-huh. and was da- significantly damaging to the point where it was going to be a lifetime problem that I could see building with my extreme discomfort with my own appearance that I could tell was not rational. And I went to use my college mental health, my graduate school mental health benefit and went to see a therapist three times and had a total reframing. And I'm not going to say imperfect, but like that stuff pretty much cured. Yeah. Three times right. to go talk to somebody and have them say, what happened? What you just said, what happened to you was horrible. Right. The way that the adults responded to what happened to you, horrible. The way that your parents responded to what happened to you, also not that great. Okay. <laughs> and it was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. The validation of it. Right. The validation of it. And yeah. having someone who, also for me, having someone say, regardless of whether or not what they were saying was true about your appearance, no one has a right to say that about another person regardless of what they look like. Right. That, I don't think I had ever heard that. That it's not okay. That's not okay. That that you could, that that it's never okay. And just having the framework, and most importantly, it's never about you. Right. It's always something. She was like, you just walked into someone else's trauma parade. Right. And they took all their stuff. And threw it on you. And dumped it on you. Yeah. 
And you're just a bystander of that. And so the big point is not to then turn and take my trauma parade and throw it on someone else to right. say, you know, that ends today. And I feel like I never, I would not have come to that on my own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not have come to that on my own. Well, and I think that that's the point of going to talk to somebody. Right. Because- like you, I actually went to see a therapist. Well, I've done that several times, but the time I'm thinking of in particular is um, my husband and I lost a baby before we had the two kids that we have now. And the grief from that was so overwhelming. Like I could not see a way out, like to be able to sit and talk with someone about it and kind of work it all out that way and have them reflect back and have them speak truth into the situation when what I I was feeling, what I was feeling, those feelings were true, but what I was thinking was not true, that we would never be able to have kids, that, you know, that there was no hope, that we would never be parents, all the things. It just is so helpful to sit with someone who is trained to be able to talk to you and help give you, give you coping skills, give you, um, ways to reframe things. I like how you did that, where it just completely shifts your paradigm. Right. And I think when, you know, going back to this book, but I, I feel like it's really strong. You know, he has that idea of an unclosed loop, a loop that is not closed. Yes. And you can tell that for Kit, her father's death is a loop that's not closed. Another great, amazing book about grief and loss that literally everyone should read is The Astonishing Color of After by Emily XR Pan. Okay. Amazing. Okay. Um, and I'll it's put a link to that in, into my dealing show. with yeah. um, her mother's suicide. The main character is dealing with her mother's suicide. Oh, wow. Wow. And her mother committed suicide the same day that she kissed her crush, her longtime crush for the first time. Okay. And having the character, it's also YA, having the character deal with her own sense of guilt that had she been there, her right. mother. If she'd been being serious instead of kissing this boy, her mother would have would have survived. I feel like has a huge amount of, and I think what Julie Buxbaum has done so well in this book, partially by having Kit literally be the driver of the car when the crash happens, even though as David lays out, it's not her fault, um, but she was driving the car. And even if it had been her fault, I actually wonder sometimes if the braver choice as a writer would have been to have her actually run the red light. Right. Um, I read this fascinating thing. They were talking about how because English assigns a doer to all verbs, like, for example, if, if I knock something off the counter with my book bag and I break someone's priceless artifact, we have to say, I knocked the face right. off right. the counter, even though it was an accident. I crashed the car. Right. You have to say that. I broke my leg is the great linguist example of like the craziness of it. Like I broke my leg. Really? <laughs> right. But it assigns purpose. Yeah. Other languages don't do that. Like there are languages where you say the the leg was the, broken. The leg was broken. The brace the base fell. Right. And so they were saying when this linguist has done a study of how people report accidents, like what people remember about a car accident. Americans remember very strongly who was dra- who caused who caused it. the wreck, yeah. even yeah. if it well English speakers in general remember mm-hmm. who caused the wreck, even if it was something that could like Kit, right? Like nothing else. Couldn't, she couldn't have done anything differently. Couldn't she have done anything differently. 
And so we have a very strong memory of who is at fault. Right. Other languages will remember what time things happened or what color the cars were, just different, different but they don't detail. remember who hit first, which is our language's obsession. Our culture. Who ran the stop sign. Right. Um, and so I think, but I think more generally, my sense is that kids feel at fault even if they weren't in the car. Right. Like kids right. feel like they feel at fault for their parents' divorce. They feel at fault for, you know, right. if I were better, then this wouldn't happen. Well, and just unless you're really deliberate in in relieving them of any responsibility perceived or otherwise, that's where your your that's where the brain goes, I think, is oh, is absolutely. assuming that. Anyway, well, I think that brings us full circle. We are closing our loop like David talked about. Thank you so much for being here, Em. I just love your insights into the story and being able to talk about this book that was just so heartwarming, so good. I just really appreciate all of your thoughts on that. So hopefully we will have you back probably more than once and definitely when your book comes out. For sure. Which is, again, tell us the name of it and when it's coming out. It's called Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, and it's coming out in the fall of 2019. Yay! Yay. I can't wait. All right. Thanks, Em. Bye. Thanks again to Emily for discussing the book with me. It is one of my favorite things in the world, reliving a book with someone who also loved it, especially a book with the depth and the complexity of what to say next. Now, one of the things that Em and I didn't get around to talking about that I want to be sure to mention is something that was part of Kit's storyline. Now, she reflects at one point on how her father, who died in a tragic car accident, worked so hard to provide stability and safety for their family. She talked about things like he made sure they had a landline in case there was an emergency where their phones wouldn't work or their cell phones, or changing the batteries and the fire alarms every year. Um, He stored a survival kit of food and water in the basement in case of a zombie apocalypse or a Category 6 hurricane. But she realizes that, and, and this is a quote from the book, the box my dad so carefully created for me, not just the one in the basement, but this safe town, this house with an alarm system, this family of three, it did nothing to protect us after all. This really struck me as a parent because I've thought a lot lately about all the ways that we try to keep our kids safe, the way we try to protect them from pain and from difficulty and from any kind of hurt that we can possibly prevent. And not that those are bad things, like please change those fire alarm batteries for sure. But it did make me think about the things I'm letting my kids experience in order to develop resiliency and confidence. That sense of accomplishment that comes from knowing, hey, I figured this out and I got through this. Whether it's things like doing their own laundry or letting them be their own advocates with teachers or friends. And even if that means you go and you sit beside them as they go and talk to a teacher or whomever it is, so that they know that you're supporting them, you're not throwing them out to the wolves, but you're letting them step out and become their own advocates. Now, if I'm swooping in to pave the way for my teens, 
I figure, how are they ever going to be able to forge the trail themselves? It's definitely food for thought because it's not always easy to know when to let them charge ahead on their own or when to kind of move the branches out of the way, so to speak. So food for thought. And it also leads me right into talking about my next episode, which is going to be called Begin with the End in Mind. And I am super excited about it because I am interviewing Noelle Ward, who is an amazing lady who has some fantastic resources to help us get our teens ready for adulting. I cannot wait for her to share her passion for teens and her wisdom on what it looks like to prepare them for life outside of our nests. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I'm not done with the discussion on what to say next. Because on Monday, that's July 2nd at 1.30 Central Time, I'll be doing a Facebook Live event. And I want to hear your thoughts on this book and what you loved about it or didn't love about it. Again, that's on Monday, July 2nd at 1.30 Central Time on Facebook. And my Facebook page there is www.facebook.com forward slash The Ish Girl. And In between now and then, if you have questions or comments about the book, I would love for you to shoot those to me in a message or just post them on my Facebook page so that we can talk about them on Monday. So thanks for doing that. Now, also, I don't want you to miss out on the next two books in the Connection Not Perfection Summer Lit Club, and I don't want you to forget to check out all the ways you can be entered to win prizes, like signing up for my weekly newsletter or signing up to have access to my free resource library, and you can go to theishgirl.com forward slash EP17, that's theishgirl.com forward slash EP17, to check out all the details and order those books and um, figure out how you can get started on entering for the uh, prizes that I have coming up in August. So thank you again for hanging out with me today for this 20th episode. I can't wait to do it again with you next week. And just remember from an ish girl who is still learning to step back and let her teens do their own trailblazing. It is all about connection, not perfection.